You're listening to Discography Discussion, episode 150, Every Time I Die. Hosted by Dan Terry. It's in my mouth. John Beatty of Brutally Speaking. Sure, that's an intro. Brandon Kellum of American Standards. I'm unequipped and unprepared to have a quitty, uh, a witty uh, line right here. Cut, do it over. <laughs> Fix it in post. And Joseph Wren. Have you done the Amstam typing test? It's your normal typing test, except it's American Standards lyrics. Why isn't that a website? Brandon, get on that. Presented by DiscussMetal.com. And if every time I die, I wake up craving delicious brains, then you are ready for this episode of Discography Discussion. I am Joe, that is Dan, that is Brandon, that is John Beatty, and we're talking about every time I die, because goddamn, we've done this 150 times. What were we thinking? I don't know what you were thinking, I mean... John Beatty of the Brutally Speaking podcast, but, you know, not Dan Terry of the Brutally Speaking podcast. I mean, what the actual fuck? Dan Terry of the Brutally Speaking podcast, Discuss Metal, Movie Mosh, Discography Discussion. Do I need to go on? Patreon.com slash something selling my soul for, you know, money. Yeah, you know what? Speaking of Patreon subscribers, we have... A few of them, and I want to shout them out right now. That was a nice transition there. They would include Alexander, Brian Dean, David Brown, Jeffrey De Los Santos, The Actual Mac, Josh Moser, Kiki Kuti, Do You Love Me? I Do Love You, Lance Allagood, The King of Metal, Native Keebs, Patrick Asplund, and Samuel Woodward. You guys are the music makers. You are the dreamers of the dreams. Actually, you guys just give us money every month to do this podcast, and we really appreciate it. And it helps us out more than you know. So thank you. It's how they're able to afford Brandon and I. <laughs> Can't wait to be swimming in these gold coins from this podcast money. What the fuck? These are chocolates. John Beatty's a cheap date. That's what I heard. Cheap ludes, man. Episode 150. Thanks to uh, 150 episodes of doing us all over again, and it's new like the first time. And at least four hours of that was John Beatty. So I want to thank John Beatty. At least five of those hours was Brandon Kellum, so I know I want to thank him. Oh, shit, are we done? Did I black out? And that was only half a podcast. <laughs> I told Brandon it was going to be nine and a half. So, I mean, oh, so we're, going, we're doing a live listening through of every single record, every single song. Correct. Okay, and then cool. And then giving, yeah, giving, uh, giving, giving our thoughts on each individual note played. Looking forward to that. My dissertation. I'm having a hard time remembering what the word dissertation means. You mean I bought this $3 saber of the champagne of beers, and this is the kind of bullshit I have to deal with? <laughs> Absolutely. I switched <laughs> to extra citra, because why not? My favorite is John bought all these like fancy beers, and he's starting off with a highlight. Hey, it's the most per volume. I got some uh, Modelo. Uh, you know, we're kind of drinking the same thing. It's got gold foil, and it's yeah. yellow. Absolutely. Well, before we hear John Beatty's senior thesis, I want to take this time to say thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. If you are not a subscriber, then you can find everything Discography Discussion at DiscussMetal.com. We are on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher. So if you have an Amazon Echo or a Google Home, you have no excuse. Ask it to play the latest episode of the Discography Discussion podcast, and it will. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Be sure to like, favorite, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It lets us know you're listening. And now Dan is going to tell us all about five-star reviews. Hey, you know, we love five-star reviews here on Discography Discussion, but the thing that I love more than that are shares. Yeah, like shares in major corporations. 
that sort of thing. But I also, yeah, and I also really, really love when you guys share the episodes on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You guys are awesome for doing that. I am going to do a contest, I promise, for people that share the episodes the most. Just keep heckling me about that. It's going to happen. Thank you guys so much. And now John Beatty's going to tell us all about Brutally Speaking. I could tell you. You about- know what? I'm going to go ahead and throw it to Dan because he is the co-host of the show. So let's have Dan actually give uh, the synopsis of Brutally Speaking. Brutally Speaking is an interview-based podcast where John and myself, uh, hopefully together but not all the time, uh, will interview various musicians in the rock world, in the metal world, sometimes even dipping into the pop world. Uh, even occasionally, I mean, we've even talked to um, amateur wrestlers. So uh, basically anybody that we think is cool and worth talking to, we will have that conversation with them. We are also the official podcast of MetalNexus.net, which is a really awesome website that you should definitely check out. John and I actually just did our 200th episode. Yeah, like 20 episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fucking confused. I got the end of the year one and the 200th one mixed up. And now Brandon is going to tell us all about American Standards. Um, American Standards, it's the uh, the must-see musical events of the winter, uh, starring James Corden, Jason Derulo, uh, Jennifer Hudson, and Taylor Swift. Um, we all have tails and uh, ears, and it's in uh, cinemas December 20th. So uh, go check it out. So Dan, tell me about Every Time I Die. Well, Every Time I Die is an American hardcore, metalcore, southern rock rock, screamo, hardcore, um, whiskey-drinking motherfucker band from Buffalo, New York. Uh, Formed in 1998. They are these two guys' favorite bands. Uh, They are definitely in my top five bands, which is why we had them come on. And I also want to apologize to everybody who I made them wait 50 episodes before we talked about Every Time I Die. Back whenever we were teasing the Norma Jean episode... For episode 100, people were like, who's it going to be? Is it going to be every time I die? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, it might be. And then it wasn't. And they're like, well, when are we going to get that? I'm like, yeah, soon. So, you know, 50 episodes later, if you guys are still on the train, we have finally pulled into the ETID junction. It's dirty, sweaty, and everything you could possibly ever want in your hardcore soaked in whiskey, piss, and vinegar, and a shitload of other great things. Definitely a huge don't give a fuck attitude musically, which I love most of the time. Yeah, I think we'll get into that kind of now as far as well, the parts we don't like. Well, <laughs> you know what, though? Let's let's jump into it first uh, just to get some perspective on you guys. Um, I'm going to throw it to Brandon first. Uh, what got you into Every Time I Die? Uh, so I had the, the one hipster friend that hated everything that was mainstream and popular at the time. Okay, so John. Think, uh, John, actually. His name was John. Gotcha. Although his name was Sean, so close enough. Fair. And uh, he, he came to band practice one day, and I think this is probably 2002 or so, right before Hot Damn came out. He had like um, a demo or one of those like compilation albums that had like some early version of Polarama on it. And he showed it to us, and uh, I fell in love immediately because I like the thing that like that really stuck out for every time I die for me was. It was heavy music, but you can tell they didn't take themselves so seriously. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't this guyliner and jet black hair thing that everybody was doing. It wasn't this tough guy music, but it was still still really heavy, you know? So that's uh, kind of what turned me on to it. And uh, at that point, I think they only had, like, you know, the burial pop bidding war was out before that and last night in town. So 
so I kind of went back and dug into those, and then Hot Damn came out, and it's, I mean, to this day, it's still one of my favorite albums. So for me, uh, there was a tour around the time Brandon's talking about, I believe it was, could have it wrong, it was Zayo, Misery Signals, Every Time I Die, Dillinger, Escape Plan? Um, I went because the Still Remains dudes had just recently gotten signed and were going to the show to, I think, meet up with some of the Haste the Day dudes or something. Um, so it was like where all the cool kids were going. And I remember watching most of that show being like, this is all garbage because uh, I didn't have a love and appreciation of stuff like this at the time. And then I saw a video for a bowl rama on MTVX and I was like, God damn, that hook is so fucking sexy. And it's just it looks like a band who loves having fun, who was doing something as low budget as a bowl rama video was, but had a lot of production value for it. And I went out and bought Hot Damn and uh, just fell in love from that point forward. I had to listen to a lot of Every Time I Die because Dan Terry was driving the car. <laughs> it was definitely not my thing back in the early 2000s, but as I have grown to appreciate hardcore and metalcore for its contributions, I love Every Time I Die because it's not the generic, we're going to sing really high pitch, hold a note, and just let it go. It's just going to be an onslaught of intense heavy it can blend in with some of the other bands, but for the most part, it's every time I die, I can tell the difference. I think for me, it was, uh, it's no secret how big of a Norma Jean fan I am. And I consider, I, I kind of consider every time I die a Norma Jean to be like peanut butter and jelly. Um, Who's the bread? Huh? Who's the, the bread? The listeners. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners because support. Because we're all <laughs> That's probably actually correct. There's that fucking beep. Uh, but you know, here's the here's the deal. Um, if I had gotten into every time I die first, I would have eventually gotten into Norma Jean. And uh, if I had gotten into Norma Jean first, I would have gotten into every time I die. You know, it, it's just it's just inevitable. You can't appreciate chuggy, dissonant, punk infused music without listening to every time I die. It, like to me, they are the torchbearers of that genre. And uh, they, they really haven't compromised on that very much at all. And um, so, yeah, I probably started listening to this band, I guess, probably around 2002, 2003. Um, I, I'm like you guys. Uh, Hot Damn was my first time. And uh, they were not gentle. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed that record. And um, I'm going to try to, unlike the Norma Jean episode, I'm going to try not to compare every single record that they put out after Hot Damn to Hot Damn. Yeah, there's but, no way uh, you can, though. No promises. 2001, Last Night in Town. This may actually be the first episode I've done of the Sagrati discussion in which I'm not going to say at some point during the course of their albums that I fell off and came back. I think I was Absolutely. on board from the beginning all the way to the end, and every time an album came out, I was there like day one to listen to it. So you're just shortening that speech to I came? Yeah, I okay. Just making sure. But no, you can pick that in editing. That's post for you, Joe. <laughs> there it is. Oh man, let's talk about the beginning. Oh, do we have to? It's discography discussion. Last night in town. I'm gonna go ahead and say, like, I <laughs> burial plot and last night in town are not every time I died in me. Um, it sounds terrible. You can't understand Keith, which is a big shame because I think, as we'll probably discuss many times from here on forward that is one of the shining things that separates the band and i understand you know you guys have talked on this podcast so much about bands first records the money that maybe they did or didn't have to record these albums but this 
this sounds like a band that wears its influences on its sleeve. Uh, it sounds like a band that loved, you know, came up with Converge, came up with, you know, all the like dead guy and so forth. Um, but didn't have anything that really differentiated itself from those bands that made those bands standouts. This was a band that if they would have continued on this route, would have just been a flash in the pan, probably in a very local sense of the, of the word and uh, wouldn't have made it very far. I definitely would be nitpicking it for just wanting to be Norma Jean going home. Well, I think to your point with the Converge thing, you're absolutely right. I mean, they're they're making, I think, what Andy always calls this riff soup back then. Just, <laughs> you know, they had three dozen riffs. None of them went together, but they forced them to be into a song. And it's, there's no repetition. There's nothing to it that really stuck with you unless you list, forced yourself to listen to it over and over again. So it's kind of hard for me to talk in retrospect about it because I have forced myself to listen to it. And because of that, I, st I still enjoy it, but I enjoy it for what it was at that time, you know? Um, and it, like you said, I mean, their recording quality is, is horrible. It sounds like Keith is yelling through like a line six amp <laughs> crank insane setting, or like he's got like a, a metal zone pedal and he's just screaming <laughs> through like guitar, you know? It's, um, but it is like, I, I do think that the people in the band are what allowed them to persevere through that and get to like the next phase. You know, I think the people were still likable and they were probably playing really heavy shows where the people at those shows still gravitated to them because of their stage presence and because they weren't up there like, you know, dre all dressed as the same person, all like trying to fit the mold of like what you're supposed to look like in that type of band. They were still like individuals and unique upon that, you know, although the music wasn't super unique. They really were just bad dead guy or bad scarlet or or bad converge you know like they just you could tell that they listen to all those bands but were not skilled enough to replicate it <laughs> and um yeah there's just a lot of shit thrown together on this record and like brandon you know i listened to it because i remember after hearing it because i heard hot damn first and I, I i went back and i was like holy shit every time i die I used to sound like this you know uh but yeah like it's it's so interconnected like we're talking like there's like 20 ideas that are all approximately 15 seconds long and then that's a song it, it doesn't really matter like what order any of it goes in there's nothing familiar there's nothing catchy there's nothing uh that's really going to bring you back and there are bands that have done that really well uh for example converge or cave in or bands like that you know but they were just classics in the genre by the time this record came out in 2001, you know, bands had been doing shit like this in the in the late 90s, and it was kind of like it was time for metalcore to um, evolve. And this is this is still a little too stuck in the past, and not even as good as the bands I'm comparing it to. And you know, there's there's hints in there where, um, especially like from Burial Pot to Last Night, like where Keith does a little bit of singing on Last Night. And maybe that, I don't know if it's, you needed the confidence to do that more, or it was just the environment they grew up in that it wasn't like really prevalent where you had singing and something that was so chaotic. Um, but like, it, it felt like that was that was kind of the bridge into what was gonna happen after that. And I, even lyrically, like Keith's lyrics on those first two albums are like so dark and so different than everything they put out after that. Uh, until you get to the later stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they were, but I feel like it was just, so dark and attempt to be like super metal or That's whatever what I mean. yeah You're, like yeah like generically dark like i just went to hot topic for the first time dark yeah they were like they're edgy for the sake of being edgy dark and not like yeah keith is very like sardonic and very like 
dark still to this day in some of his lyrical tones, but this was, it didn't feel authentic. It felt like what everybody else was doing. This was chaotic for the sake of being random. Yeah. This almost felt like, and it's something I kind of, in listening to the discography over the last week or so, and and just in general, feel like when we kind of came to know Keith's penchant for for reading and and just kind of creative writing, that sometimes this didn't feel like slipping into a character or just slipping into something as a creative writing practice to me. Yeah, fair. Definitely agree. Are we ready to move on to Hot Damn? Yes, please. All right. 2003. Who wants to go first? Eeny, meeny, mindy, Brandon Kellum. All right, I'll take it. Well, I mean, so one thing <laughs> to speak to the last two albums is you don't hear them sit, uh, play any of those songs now. I don't really know if back then when I was listening to Every Time I Die, I've heard them play any of the songs from Burial Plot or Last Night. When you get to Hot Damn, they have I... songs that to this day they're playing on every single show. I mean, you've got like Floater and Ebolarama that they probably play almost every single show that they, they do today. So you can tell that's where they still, I think, have an appreciation for that that album. Um, it got a lot more fun in the music. You know, it's you can tell there's um, almost like a sense of uh, I don't know if sarcasm is the word, but there's there's a little more tongue in cheek demeanor to it. So it's heavy, but it's got a little bit of structure, just enough to keep you there on the first listen. Um, you can tell they're all talented as hell, and uh, Keith did. You can you can tell also Keith like probably got more comfortable with his voice at that time. And when he's yelling, he's not just yelling as hard as he can through like a distortion pedal. You can actually hear some of the character and like the delivery that he's doing in his vocals that I think makes Every Time I Die unique in the style. Um, and like I said, I probably took it up off the top, but still one of my favorite heavy albums to this day. Uh, if there's anybody that or any album that we're trying to rip off with American standards, it's probably Hot Damn. You heard it here. <laughs> I think Hot Damn, when you look at it, this is kind of where you start getting a sense of who every time I die is and kind of wants to be moving forward, you know, Garner kind of the chaotic pieces and now there's more song structure. Um, there's more sense for me of what Andy and Jordan do as guitar players who write these songs. You kind of get a better sense of who writes what and kind of a sense of a two guitar band. Whereas before it was just like, yeah, you play this part. I'm going to play this other thing. And then we're going to kind of maybe meet in the middle for a second over a breakdown riff and then separate and kind of like Dan likes to always say, like who can, (laughs) who can get to the end of the song the fastest. And this is one of the first times where you see the band writing songs, having parts that kind of gel, having somewhat normal traditional song structures and, you know, there's a song like I've been gone a long time where I think Enable Arama, where you're kind of getting a sense of a, of a chorus or a sense of melody, very hook driven that we hadn't seen at this point. And this is kind of really a big turning point for me with a band in this genre where it's like it's not the traditional scream, scream verse, song chorus, repeat and whatever. Do that over 12 songs. There's your record. There's a lot of interesting things where they're still kind of holding on to the punk rock kind of. Uh, it's kind of hard to to quantify this band and a genre, but because like at times it's like it almost is grind esque with it just the the assault of riffs they throw at you. But it's a thing where there's just kind of more cohesion in this and a, a broader sense of who this band wants to be, what they will become. And I think for a lot of fans, if this is where you came on, or even if you came on at last night in town, you, you're very excited and taking notice of this band in the early 2000s and going like, this band has got something different than anything else I'm listening to at this point. My biggest complaint about 
this type of hardcore is when it's being chaotic and random for the sake of being chaotic, it doesn't go anywhere. What's the point? The point is we got up on stage and played for 20 minutes and played as fast, as intense as we could. Maybe somebody jumped off something high and landed on a bunch of people, but that's not appealing to me unless there's something to it. The difference between Hot Damn and Last Night in Town to me is Last Night in Town sounds like this is the first songs we wrote. We shoved everything together as quick as we could. We generated our 20, 30 minute set and that's the best we could do. We put it on tape. This sounds like the band's been playing together, at least knows how to put a song together. Even though it might sound chaotic, doesn't sound like they're out of control. I think it's really interesting that this record came out in 2003 and sounds the way that it does. And what I mean by that is that there are there were a lot of bands in like 2004, 2005 that did the whole we're super, super heavy and then now we're going to go Southern Rock. And it's really, really easy to kind of pigeonhole every time I die in there. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that in 2003, people weren't doing that. They were they were still kind of going for that super heavy sound or going for the sound that, that John was saying about, you know, here's, here's the screen verses and the sound choruses. Um, there were a lot of bands basically that ripped off of Every Time I Die at, like after that. You know, without, without Hot Damn, you don't have Maylene and the Sons of Disaster. You don't have uh, He Is Legend going on to put out Suck Out the Poison. Fuck yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, the, the influence of Hot Damn is there. Um, I always thought that was so interesting, too, that, like, Every Time I Die is always kind of lumped in, if not, like, the the lead of that like southern hardcore southern metalcore like movement but like they still stand like in my opinion they stand still unique from a lot of what that was i, I mean at their core i don't think they're a southern band they well, have no. riffy stuff. they're not doing like a lot of the uh, the open chugs that other bands were doing and like the metal riffs but um but they've always i think like you do a couple of pull-offs on three and five you know and then all of a sudden you're like a southern core band and they they definitely like i don't think they ever uh, subscribe to that mentality of being a southern band, but they were always in that like group of bands. You know, when you talk about Heath Legend, when you talk about um, really any of, any of those bands, I think Norma Jean even gets lumped in that southern hardcore stuff uh, sometimes. Yeah, well, they're from Georgia, you know. Uh, yeah. So, because I mean, Buffalo, Buffalo's not necessarily <laughs> <laughs> New York City. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about southern metal? <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting about Hot Damn is that, yeah, like it's it is an onslaught of riffs, but it's all put together really well. Instead of it just being accidentally chaotic because we were hoping it might be chaotic and shook it up in a jar to see how it would turn out, this record is much more intentional about the feeling that it's trying to create, and it's largely is successful that way. Because I always say that that every time I die, I just doesn't care. Like, oh, they don't give a fuck. They just get out there and play just balls flying in the wind you know and while that's true i think that there's a lot more thought and careful planning that goes into creating that feeling than them just not giving a fuck and that's what i like about hot damn is that it's intentional like it's it's controlled chaos it is intentional it's got more traditional song structures you actually remember songs you know and they actually you know they're they're not really quite there to where they've got really great hooks other than like in Ebola-rama, you know, they had some hooks there. But like, this is the perfect mixture of the underground fan is going to love this album 
and somebody that's just getting into this kind of music is going to love this album too. So I think in that regard, it is wildly successful, but it is interesting to see how much further the band can go. I do want to make a note of the song in the event that everything should go wrong, um, which sounds at the time very unlike what the band had done. But I just want to put a pin in, in that song specifically so we can talk about it down the road. So just for everyone listening, remember that in the event of in every ah, in the event that everything should go wrong on Hot Damn, we'll kind of bring that up down the road. It's time for the rise and fall of John Beatty, aka 2005's Gutter Phenomenon. What a phenomenon! Well, this is also I think one of the band uh, got a lot of new ears, specifically mm-hmm. because of uh, Guitar Hero. Absolutely, <laughs> the uh, the assist with Guitar Hero and the New Black, I think kind of elevated them um, to a different level and to a different audience that probably wasn't listening to them before. They start throwing in more hooks, more repetition. I think um, Keith's just such a range in his vocals and kind of going back to what you were saying, Dan, about um, like what was going on at that time was typically one guy in the band is screaming and another guy is spelting out these big old sung choruses that are repeated like after every verse, right? And like Keith is literally doing everything himself. I don't think I've ever seen like Jordan or Andy or any of the guys go anywhere near a mic, nor do they have one on stage. So it's only Keith up there that's doing everything on this album and live. Yeah, he's the singer of the band in every sense of the word. Yeah. And I mean, this is where he starts commanding a presence. I think his lyrics here um, start getting really honed into kind of how literary he is. Um, One critique, which I may be hung on across for saying is, I think Keith it's really good at this point at writing one-liners that everybody like cling on to that everybody want to scream but if you read any of the songs as like a cohesive song like I, I still feel that like if you call it riff soup back for like the like hot damn like the lyrics are lyric soup it's like he has like a notepad of hundreds of lines and he puts them in there and he knows that people are going to go nuts for them they're going to get them tattooed they're going to uh you know scream them in the front row but like it's still kind of cryptic on what the songs are actually about outside of the lines, you know? Yeah, that's you may notice that I'm not talking about lyrics too much right now because I've never <laughs> really been able to make heads or tails of a lot of their stuff, and that's okay. Like I said, but it's all awesome to scream along to. I don't know what the yeah. fuck it means, but it's really fun to scream at a show. It, they all, all the lines sound clever as hell. Like, every single line sounds like there's so much time put into that one, but then it's followed up by another line that may not have any tie to the one prior, but it's still like it. It still re- like each line resonates on its own. I feel like John you know, has something to say to that. You know, this album very much like Brandon was saying is kind of word soup, and you know, down the road Keith kind of has admitted that you know he was he was kind of hung up in writing lyrics that he knew people would get tattooed, knew that were like good for shirts, good slogans, good whatever, just catchy you know, wordplay. And it's something that has been undeniably one of the band's strongest points uh, is, is Keith and his lyricism and, and his ability to write things beyond the casual vocalist would in the scene at this point. Um, the thing I do kind of wonder, and it kind of starts on this record, granted, if we go back to, I think it was Burial Plot, um, you know, some of the guests that have been on these records, you know, Kill the Music has Gerard Way. There is a version of the, the song, which is what most people know, that has Gerard Way on it. And obviously at that point, Mike Hem wasn't uh, the level of Mike Chemical Romance that they are now today. 
but that kind of starts sort of that trend of getting some guests on these records that are kind of a bit left field of what you would assume is going to be on these records. Um, I, I, going back to this record, listening for the, for this discussion, something I kind of noticed that kind of bothered me actually was Machine's production on this record. Um, it's kind of been a, a, a struggle for me leading up to a few of these records where I'm like. There's great points about all the records. Like you go back to Hot Damn, you know, I think the riffs are good. The, the songwriting is getting better. The lyrics are getting a lot more tongue in cheek and kind of more more sharp witted and so forth. But it, it's just not all there. Like there's certain aspects of the, the presentation that are not as good as the live output. And, you know, I for the longest time thought that um, Hot Damn or I'm sorry, Gutter Phenomenon was was really good. And then I just started noticing the production art and I was like, man, like the drums kind of and eh, the like guitars are a little bit kind of like taking the balls out of the guitars. Like Keith's vocals sound a little processed. There's a lot of like doubling and tripling and layering that aren't really necessary. And it just kind of made me start wondering, like, is this the record that the band necessarily wanted to put out? Or is it a thing where at the time ferret was like hey you guys are kind of growing let's get you with a with a good producer who can maybe take you guys to the next level and obviously the guitar hero song of the new black did that was the adding of daryl palumbo on some of these tracks necessarily i i don't know i think keith sounds enough like him that it wasn't really necessary personally it just seemed like a cheap grab at getting some of those fans um so there just kind of seems to be some some ties where I think the the band would have been fine on their own, but there just seems to be these weird grabs at getting more popularity at this point for me. It definitely feels that way. Anytime you see a name that you didn't see before, and I haven't gone back and looked, was that a band that they toured with, or is it just how many people can we put on the record that will bring in fans of those bands and grow this fan base? Well, I think to that point, and sorry to cut anyone else off, I think with Glassjaw obviously being an East, actually with both bands, I think being an East Coast band, Glassjaw obviously is a very New York band. Uh, My Chemical Romance probably was coming up in the same scene that Thursday and a lot of those bands over in New Jersey were coming up in. And so, yeah, I'm sure back then, all these bands probably played together. I mean, Andy used to talk about on various podcasts and interviews about how they would just play with anyone and everyone. Like, oh, fuck, we got like three days in the Midwest and we got to play with someone. Oh, shit, my chem is playing over here. Like, fuck it, let's let's go with them. Like, like Dan said earlier, they are a band that kind of doesn't give a fuck about anything. And that comes into play further on down the road with the tours they take with the, the approach to their sound as it keeps evolving. But this was one... You know, I look back on it finally. I still think it's a great record, but in context of what's to come and looking back, I just kind of now I'm like, ah, God, I feel like a label maybe kind of had more say in how this record came out than the band maybe had would have wanted to. I think this is a perfectly fine record, but in my honest opinion, it's a stepping stone to the Big Dirty. Especially it, in production. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's literally one of those albums where i mean there's there's nothing wrong with gutter phenomenon i like it i think it's great i don't like it as much as like hot damn but at the same time i still really really i really really enjoy it the problem is is you've got a record that's sandwiched between two records that are really great so yeah i must be hungry because i keep talking about sandwiches god damn it dude (laughs) but uh (laughs) you know it's just that like the big dirty is a monumental record which we'll get into (laughs) and hot damn is a monumental record and Gutter Phenomenon is just kind of there in the middle, and it's like, hey, we're still a record, and we're kind of a transitional thing. 
But yeah, I think that maybe they were just trying to take the the label was trying to take the new thing, maybe polish it up a little bit, make it sound a little bit bigger. But unfortunately, you're in a time where, you know, digital recording really isn't amazing. And so their idea of let's make it sound awesome turns into, wow, some stuff sounds muted that shouldn't sound muted. And then they kind of overdo it in other places. And they over, like, like I feel like all the layering that was being done on this record, like, is almost inconsequential as far as the actual songs go. Like, they don't really call for it. Yeah, like you said, I think it's just uh, it's a bridge to get to what's next. And whether that's a, uh, a result of like any kind of push from the label or otherwise, I don't know that they would have got to uh, Big Dirty without this album. But yeah. I, I do agree that this album, like, it's trumped by what's before it and what's after it. 2007, The Big Dirty. Oh, man. Oh, man, oh, man. It's about to get big and, and dirty. dirty. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I got to stop saying oh, man. But I get that way, man, about bands like this that I've been listening to for decades. It's just really hard to, to not just get excited every single time we move on to the next record. Uh, the Big Dirty is like when Etid really became Etid. Does that make sense? Like, it's kind of true on Hot Damn, but it's really true on Big Dirty. Uh, that's not to say that all the records after this sounded just like this, but this was just another revelation. The energy that is present on this record was unexpected, to be honest. I really thought after Gutter Phenomenon that the band was just going to start getting more and more mainstream sounding. And then they were kind of like, well, fuck you, Dan. We didn't do that. Well, I mean, that's something to say to the staying power of this band, too. It's like they have the talent and, and Keith has the ability to write the books. So if they wanted to be exposed to a mainstream audience, they could have done that at any point up until today. But I think they've been able to keep their, you know, their original fan base and not alienate them on any of their albums, including this one. Um, while still growing and reaching out to like the younger kids, like the kids now that listen to Knock Loose and Bane and everything, those bands look up to Every Time I Die. So Every Time I Die is managing to keep their old fan base and still grow with the like you know the younger fan base that's just getting into hardcore. And I, I really think that the fact that they didn't change on this album, they just they sound bigger than ever on this album. It sounds more powerful than ever. Um, that, like you said, they doubled down on what they are doing, and they, they're just doing it better. Like it's. It's not a it's not a complete 180 in style. It's just a elevated version of where, where they're already heading, like their trajectory. It's the first time I think that much to what Brandon and I were saying earlier about Keith's lyrics basically kind of being a bunch of word soup. This is where shit kind of starts feeling more cohesive. Like you look at a song like Werewolf, it's chock full of fun things to, to repeat and sing along, but it makes sense. It's a cohesive thought kind of from start to finish as far as the the uh the yeah. topics that are yeah and then you kind of look at songs like city and years and stuff like that and they kind of showcase a, a different side of the band and you know getting dallas green on on this record and so forth i, I think they're just kind of they're kind of figuring out how to like bring in guests where they they work and fit with the band yeah they probably toured with them obviously they toured with alexis on fire back at this point but this is kind of just you know, one of my, I think like a, a, one of my favorite songs on this record, and just let me make sure I have the right song. Yeah, in a rehab, it just, god damn it, that song is so fucking good, and lyrically it, it paints a, a wider picture of something that you feel like Keith actually went through, as opposed to just being like, okay, I have three minutes. Here comes kind of a frenetic part. Let's scream this. So oh, here's kind of a fun witty part I can throw over this like kind of singing part. 
And I just feel like with Ebbett's production on this, which, I mean, Ebbett's has done so much great shit for a lot of legendary bands. Hatebreed, Dead Guy. Like, we talked earlier about how it felt like Dead Guy Jr. with Every Time I Die. What better fucking band, what better producer to go to than fucking Ebbett's to get the best out of this band? And I think this really is the band firing on all cylinders, being unapologetically who they are and knowing exactly how to execute that to its to its nth degree and if you weren't a fan of this band if you had only heard of this band at this point this is the record that probably pulled you in and made you a fan from this point forward and made you go back this is one of the best hardcore records if you want to give this band a label of southern hardcore just because they have the blues influence in their music to me that just sounds like solid songwriting it sounds like a band that walks in and a crowd that's never heard them before is at least intrigued enough to listen to it. But then this isn't just your standard run-of-the-mill rock and roll in 2007. This is hardcore. We're going to yell at the mic and make some loud noises, and everybody's going to want to jump around and break stuff. We're setting a new standard, although it's not quite the American standard. I knew it was going that route. <laughs> Pardon me while I go myself. hey <laughs> Can, no, can I we say, like to your Go point, ahead. like every time I die is a band that they'll they'll get put on any random tour they take and still be able to win over the crowd. It doesn't matter what crowd it is. And like I don't know if it's as much as like we keep saying like it's the don't give a shit attitude. Like I do think like it's they don't give a shit what people think about the tours they're doing, but I think they're also doing it very strategically. Uh, both in the placements of like the guest vocals and the bands they're touring with to expand themselves to audiences that probably wouldn't hear them or go to their shows otherwise. And then once they actually get that exposure, they're able to pull them in because even if you're not into this particular style, you, you can feel the energy, you know, especially at the live shows. I mean, I, I've probably been to every show that they've played in Arizona over the last 15 years. I can't, haven't seen a crowd they haven't won over. Maybe with the exception of the All-Stars Tour. Outside of that, won over every single crowd. Fallout Boy Tour was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I do want to comment to, to the touring because I, I think it would be a disservice if we talked about this band. And I know we're talking only about the recorded output, but you, you can't deny their live show. Like, if you are just remotely interested in this band, there's no way you go see this band live and aren't going like, fuck, I need to at least see that band again. I I think it is such an integral part of what makes this band and how they get their fans is the live show, is the fact that they have consistently gone out with bands that maybe aren't their demographic target-wise, but also the fact that they just are live on the road. They're so DIY. They're they're the band that you will see as soon as they get done playing at merch, hanging out with you, signing shit. They don't care. And it's just, I, I think that's part of what has always endeared me to this band is it feels like a local band on the biggest sense, I guess, the best way I can put it, where you're going to be able to see them probably four or five times a year coming through. You get to see them. They're always at merch. They're always nice. You kind of get to build a relationship with them. And it just endears you to them as people. And I, I gotta say, you can't not feel that way as well because of the DVDs that came with most of these CDs in this this time frame. I mean, the fact that Chinfo is a thing that most everybody that loves this band knows about is because of those DVDs. Yeah, no, you're right. I think the, the reason they have been able to stick, stick around for 20 years is because people are so invested in the, the members of this band. And they've all also been able to go out and like, 
do their own thing. Like, you know, Keith is writing books now and Jordan's got his clothing company and Andy is wrestling. They've got so many things that aren't like completely related to the band, but people are invested in those things now too. So it just makes you like the people in the band and kind of root for them as the underdog to like, you know, to be, to be able to keep pushing on. And like, hell, what band in their style has consistently toured for 20 years and they're doing like 300 days a year, you know, it's ridiculous. Like most bands in that metal core genre from 2005 and so, they, they took big gaps in touring or they lost tons of members. Dude, they're I mean, so burned the out. Yeah. yeah. Outside of the bass player and the drummer, I mean, every time I die, it's like one of the few bands from that time that's still playing with the same two guitarists. Keith is still on vocals. They're doing the same style of music and there was no lapse in like touring, no lapse in recording. Like it's, it's been consistent across the board. How much do you honestly think at this point, you know, we're, we're almost a decade into the band's career. How much of that do you feel lends to the success they're starting to see? I I mean, thinking about timing-wise, like, you know, obviously MySpace and Facebook down the line and all that stuff, I think that allows them to connect to their fans too in a different way. And I think that's probably a huge, huge part, if not the, the biggest part of why people stick around. Because, I mean, there's a lot of bands that I loved for one or two albums, and then I fell off for a long time because I didn't really feel connected to the band as much as with Every Time I Die. Like, I, I've consistently felt connected to them because I'm, you know, I'm following what they're doing. I'm following the, the individuals in this band on their social media accounts. And, like, it's just, I think that's what keeps me around, you know? Persistence is important, right? Yeah. That's absolutely. how you become a legend. You just hang around long enough. Most of the bands that put out records that we know of either do something big or they just do a lot of whatever they do. Every Time I Die has some big records. Norma Jean has some big records. Metallica has a few big records. But then, who's over here listening to Joe Satriani after all these years? This guy. Because he keeps putting stuff out, and I'm a guitar player. I want to hear what he's going to do next. For most people, they're not going to listen to him. There's nothing there other than what guitar riff did I write today. I think the thing that's interesting to me, and I know we're kind of beating a dead horse a little bit, but it's just like how adapted this band was to a lot of the interesting opportunities given to them. You know, we talked about on Gutter Phenomenon, you know, the new Black being on Guitar Hero. A lot of bands turned that shit down on the first run. You look at, you know, getting along with Doug Spangenberg, who was doing those Hellfest DVDs and so forth, and then him, them bringing him out to do, you know, the Shit Happens DVD, the, the DVDs that accompany the Big Dirty and, and the upcoming New Junk Aesthetic, to where you kind of got like a nice four-year snapshot of the band uh, being with them throughout this whole process, doing Warp Tour and being exposed to a plethora of different kind of bands and, and the fans that those people would go to. And it just, throughout the whole thing, you, you never felt like anything changed them. That they just kind of were taking everything in and trying to make it, you know, share that experience one way or another. And I just feel like a lot of bands miss that. Like, you know, like you listen to Josta's podcast and you hear him talk about like, oh, fuck, we should have done more of, you know, stuff on YouTube or stuff on these things or embrace these platforms. And I feel like every time I die, the individual band members and the band members themselves really took it upon themselves to be accessible to their fans in so many different ways and i feel like that's where a lot of bands in this mid-2000s where people were like we lost our fans and we don't know the fuck where they went every time i die didn't and i think that's really something that doesn't get brought up when you talk about the band is just the accessibility that the fans have always had to them even when you know twitter didn't exist or whatever well yeah i mean that 
like you bringing up shit happens, I think is another great testament to like when you watch that, they're not trying to be tough guys. They're not trying. To, like, <laughs> no, they're not trying to put on this persona of being this huge rock band. They're just a bunch of dudes that are like in a van, like goofing around. Right. So like you feel so connected because you're like, that's me and my friends in the van messing around. You know, these are actually real people. And you feel so connected to them because of that. And like like you guys said, with like Shinfo and all that other stuff, all that spawned from actually seeing who they were as people. And then just being like, wow, I want to hang out with this band. Um, and, you know, a small tangent to that. Um, one of the things they did online around this time that um, I haven't seen as many people talk about, but they did this movie called Total Behavior. <laughs> <laughs> it's the funniest thing. And they, you could tell they just had like a couple days off or something like on tour. And they filmed this like full blown, like 30, 40 minute long movie about um, like basically someone uh, taking like, I think a ray to uh, shoot a meteorite into planet earth and it's destroying the planet <laughs> earth. And it's got a bunch of other guys that are on tour with at the time. And it's so goofy, but it's so fucking funny. That's awesome. I don't think I actually saw that movie though. I'll have to send that to you. I'm not as big of a once. super fan as you guys. You know, I mean, if Norma Jean put out a movie, you know, uh, but uh, <laughs> how many movies have Zayo put out? Yeah. This record. Oh my goodness. Like they definitely, I already talked about this earlier, but like, this just was like such an example because you have to understand that at this time, every heavy band that I liked was going more mainstream. And the weird thing about every time I die is they were going more mainstream or they were getting more popular without having to resort to those cheap tricks that all the other bands were doing. Like all the heavier bands were doing where they're like, well, we got to sing more. Well, every time I die sings whenever the fuck they want. <laughs> You know, Keith sings whenever he feels like it. It's not really confined to a verse, chorus, verse structure. You know, so like you, you always had that. You had the clean vocal. Every time I die has the ingredients to turn into a straight up butt rock band, <laughs> but they just don't do it. You know, and if they do do it, they're just doing it to be funny. And uh, and I, that's what I liked about this record is I, I definitely came into it feeling like, oh my god, is there anything that is there anything that every time I die can't do? Because they could go heavier. They can go softer, yet never get accused of being sellout. They're like, they're the perfect band for unpleasable metal fan. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> unpleasable metal fan. You know, because they don't change enough to piss me off, you know, and they do the same thing over and over again without getting repetitive. <laughs> and that just kind of blows my mind. And I think it's more that every time I die isn't really defined by a sound as much as they're defined by an attitude. Yeah. Hardcore as fuck, and they don't give a fuck. That's kind of been the theme of the conversation. Which is why the next album, New Junk Aesthetic, is such a great title. Because they're like, yeah, here's some new junk, but it's the same aesthetic. I think this record's really interesting. You know, it's the first time the band has gone back to the same producer, obviously with Ebbets, and just really building upon the foundation that they had on the last record. But... And I know, you know, sometimes when you guys talk about these records, it's just solely about the records. It's about the music and so forth. But I do really want to kind of bring up the DVD again with this, because like, you know, with Roman Holiday, like when I hear that song starting off the record, I'm just like, fuck, what a great way to start this record. And I remember in the DVD, Andy being like, yeah, I have this like really noisy four chord song that I want to do. Uh, but <laughs> but Steve's being a little bitch and wants me to move <laughs> all this shit in the studio before we recorded or whatever. And it's just like I really do sometimes at times with this record feel like this is just something that like, yo, like Andy's like, yo, I got this like noisy four chord song. The band figured it out while they were probably recording or whatever. 
And now we got this like awesome banger of a fucking song to start this record off with. But it probably was just total happenstance because of the band being, you know, all living together in an, uh, an apartment area, living together, recording this record. And just that that sense of trust in each other, like, yo, if Andy wants to do this, like, fuck it, let's just see what comes of it. Like, we got nothing to lose. And instead, now you got like a song that when you hear it live, like, you know, some shit's about to go down. It is a fucking pit activator. Get it go. And it's just one of those things that when I when I listen to this record, it's the band again firing on all cylinders, really just kind of coming into their own. There are songs like Wanderlust for me, like where I kind of wonder if there's a little bit of infidelity on Keith's side uh, that maybe he kind of came to grips with. Um, but I mean, this is also a record where you're seeing Jordan kind of coming into his own with his illustration and bringing that to the band and what it will kind of represent within the band and the lyrics and kind of so forth, you know, which, you know, Jordan Buckley worldwide and so forth. And it just when I remember getting this record and, and feeling like a music fan, like ripping it open, getting it on vinyl, kind of looking at all the album artwork, listening to the lyrics, doing all this kind of stuff, watching the DVD and just being totally ensconced in this whole package of things that the band wanted us to take in around this timestamp of this record. And I mean, top to bottom, this record is fucking great. I mean, you got Greg from Dillinger Escape Plan on it. You got fucking... <laughs> Of someone they've toured with, but you probably didn't expect. But Pete Wentz at the end on on the deluxe version of this record with uh, Goddamn Kids these days, like this is just a great fucking record through and through. And I think a song like Wonderlust kind of showcased what the band had started with a song like A Bowl of Rama on Hot Damn, song like you know the New Black on Gutter Phenomenon. They always kind of have that one song that could be the crossover song, but it doesn't feel like it's been forced. And I think that's the thing that also is crazy about this band is any direction they go, you never go, oh, there's the cash grab song or, oh, there's the one to appeal to the the people who love the dissonant, you know, down tempo, whatever the fuck D beat song. It just sounds like every time I die, like they are their own genre. And, you know, I think the whole idea of a package is a really important part. Like the fact that art is being done in house by Jordan, like everything is something that's a product of the band. Whereas I think with a lot of other bands, it's, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like, all right, some other artist did this and, you know, did our artwork for this album and did some completely random person did a video. This this feels like everything they're putting out is a product of the band. The videos, the, um, I mean, the tour videos, the artwork, everything is what the band, like, represents and it all ties together as a package, right? which I think that cohesiveness, um, I mean, that resonates with people. That's why people are getting Jordan Buckley tattoos and that's why you've got, like, you know, this Facebook group now, It's Idiots, which is insane. And like their annual festival where there's thousands of people going, like people are so invested in this band because everything is done in-house by the band. I think the one thing I want to mention before everyone else kind of talks to, you know, Brandon's talking about the videos they're doing. They incorporated the artwork that Jordan was doing in the Wanderlust video to really tie even the artwork that only if you bought the physical product are you even aware of what you're looking at but they're putting it into their music videos to really have a sense of like this cohesion between the the product as a product and the visual and all the other mediums that this band is, is represented on. And I think that that's, again, something that a lot of bands miss the mark on is just a strong sense of brand through and through. Um, I don't feel like a lot of bands take the time to make sure that everything is quote unquote on brand. And this band definitely does. This is my favorite record. This is the first time the band isn't being chaotic for the sake of being chaotic. 
even a little bit. Every song is basically just a really non-standard punk rock song. My favorite record by Norma Jean is Polar Similar because it's everything Norma Jean does, but they slowed it down and added some groove to it. Sometimes it's okay to slow down a little bit. This record, compared to everything else, straight punk rock with non-standard guitar riffs. Yeah. You know, the whole the idea of being punk rock, too, I think it, it did set them apart a bit in that um, in this scene because they are a little bit faster than a lot of the bands that they're playing with at this, this time. When it comes to, I guess, like grind and stuff aside, like Converge, but they are just steady, fast beats, you know, and it's just, it's, it's metal, it's heavy, but it's on top of steady, fast drums, you know? Does anybody else think that Roman Holiday should have been the closer of the album and not the opener? No opener, hands down. I disagree. I, I think, think I think you could start I, with I think you can start with Russian Soldier. I honestly and end it with Roman Holiday. Goddamn kids these days, even though it's the deluxe version, and that's uh, that and uh, what is it? Uh, the song they did with the dude from the Bronx um, are technically the how the album. Yeah, are technically how the deluxe edition ends. To me. When you get to goddamn kids these days, the lyrical concept that Keith is kind of wrapping in, I think really is a great album closer. Every time I hear it, when I listen to that record, I'm like, that should have been the album closer. It feels fitting. It's a nice bookend to Roman Holiday starting things off. I do think that's that's how the album should have ended. And it's it's really weird that a lot of people don't know of that song, seemingly, because I, I honestly don't know how that song was left off of the fucking record, but... Um, God damn, that song is so fucking good. And Roban Holiday, they start a lot of their sets with that song too. It's just yeah, good. they do. It's either that or Underwater Bimbos. I don't know. Yeah. I just well, Underwater Bimbos makes sense, but uh, Russian Ro- Soldier Roman- opens the record. If this is Hot Damn or the Big Dirty, <laughs> Roman Holiday opens the record. New Junk Aesthetic, where we're reminding you that you're about to listen to an Every Time I Die record by giving you just a little bit of groove at the opening. I don't know. Just I, it just I've heard so many records like this, and they always end with like a kind of more epic track. That's like why that. this one I, is I better, know. Dan. Oh my god, you're gonna go all fucking speak, Ryan Johnson on me. Doesn't that speak <laughs> to the fact that, that every time I die doesn't do what you expect them to do? Most bands, you're right, would have probably put Roman Holiday at the end or in the middle of the record. I would they were have. like, fuck it. They're like, fuck it. We're gonna put this banger right out the gate and grab you by the balls, kind of unassumingly, because you don't know where it's gonna go. And then it just fucking grabs you and then doesn't release you until the end of the record. And that's what an album opener is supposed to do. And then you get the Marvelous Slut right afterwards, which is just like getting punched in the face 72 times in like a minute. I'm waiting for Dan to bring up Organ Grinder. Oh, organ <laughs> I Grinder? Art, yeah. I love the artwork for that. That's a solid uh, visual to go with that, rec- that song. It's not as good as Genital Grinder, but yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's way better. The song Genital Grinder sucks. So I think you mentioned going into now X Lives with Underwater Bimbo. We might as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I will say is the second I heard, because that was the first single off this, and that made me right away think, oh shit, they're going back to like Hot Damn style. There's yeah. so much distortion on those vocals. It's such a catchy line. I mean, like any Every Time I Die fan has probably posted a status that says, I want to be dead with my friends. It's just that song like grabs you by the balls. It's so fucking quick. It's like the, I mean, that song is just perfect. And then by counterbalancing that with Revival Mode as a second single, then it makes you think like, where the hell is this album going? I remember I was so like, I was so excited to get this album on day one, just because they, they put out these two songs who are complete opposites of each other. And I didn't know, is this gonna go hot damn or are they gonna explore something completely different? 
I think the thing that was interesting for me about this too, you know, we're, and I typically wouldn't bring it up if it wasn't so prevalent on from here going forward. You know, we lost Josh, you know, that used to be from from Autumn to Ashes Shiner, you know, regging the full effect and so forth on bass. They finally get Steve, you know, back at this point, like on the recording or the touring of the last album cycle. The damn things has kind of happened. And I think a lot of that actually comes into play because a song like Revival Mode, actually, to me, I remember Andy making the comment about being like, when I started hearing those damn things songs, I was like, oh, fuck, like they're going to blow up and be the biggest band ever because how could they not? And so his his response to kind of a big quote unquote single was revival mode because it didn't sound like an every time I die song at the time. But then again, you have a solo by John Christ of Danzig and then you're kind of back into the. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but I think this this album really kind of starts the shift of Keith writing things that are more abstract and starting to write more personal where you can kind of go like, I think this is about this. I think these are things that this, that this person that Keith obviously went through and are very personable to him, not just an exercise in creative writing of fun lyrics or interesting lines times 30. Um, you know, I think revival mode is really interesting. I, I think Indian giver is I mean, you want to talk about a, a fucking way, a way to bookend the record. I mean, that's a, that's a motherfucker of a Fuck. song. <laughs> so good. All right, on to the next record. <laughs> Are you guys looking at me? Sorry. Well, also, I mean, it's good to, I, probably good to call out. We haven't talked about, well, I guess we talked a little bit about the, the production and the, uh, the studios, but God City, this is where they actually go to God City for the studio. And I think that's probably a key, too, because you've got this full circle where... No, oh, that's, that's the next record. Next record. Oh, is it the next one? This, ah. this is the one with uh, Joe... Uh, <laughs> the, uh, fuck, what's his name? Um, Barisi? God. Yeah, this is the one, John John Barisi. Uh, yeah. Joe Barisi. Joe Barisi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah well, that evil Joe you, Barisi. You, you know your stuff, because I, I I could have sworn it was this one, but if, you, if it's the next the, one... The only I reason I remember that any other album outside of Kurt Ballou doing their stuff. <laughs> no, the only reason I remember this is because in the making of when they stopped doing the DVDs and went to the, the online web series, which again, a band taking advantage of the fact of knowing where the fans potentially will be. They did like a, a four or five part thing where they did like, oh, here's Jordan and and uh, Andy doing guitars. Here's you know Mitch doing the bass. Here's everyone doing their thing. And Joe was like, I always hide a tambourine or a triangle noise somewhere on every record I do. And I still haven't found it. I still have not found it. I don't know where it is. But if he says it's on every record he does with some of the noises on this fucking record, I definitely have to feel like it's there. I just haven't been able to find it. No, I do. You're absolutely right. I do remember him saying that. And I also remember thinking to myself, how funny would it be if he just said that off the cuff? He's just fucking with us. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's just digging through his whole. (laughs) But this is also one of the few people I can think of that potentially production wise, the producer mixed and engineered everything, too. So it really has a singular person's fingerprints all over this. That has a strong chance of failing. And it definitely did not fail. It did not. And this is also the first to feature Legs, their new drummer at the time. Um, From Norma Jean? From Norma Jean. (laughs) I actually saw Legs' first show, and I got a Jordan Buckley tip jar tattooed (laughs) on me at the show because I've been day drinking all day. Very nice. I'll I'll show you gentlemen that tattoo real fast. Just the, the tip jar. Gotta see it. Gotta see it. Answer coming off. Answer coming off. It is on my leg where I'd have to take off my pants, but still. (laughs) Amazing. I need to get that as a bumper sticker for my car. Mine also says drink till you're gay. 
I wonder how long it'd take before I got pulled over. <laughs> I want to ask this question, Brandon. How was uh, this year's Eated beer? Uh, so I had both. Um, I think poor advice is much better. They're both good. They're both worth having. But when you got to the venue, they're charging like twelve bucks a pop on those cans. Yeah, Fuck yeah. that. Uh, it was better to go to the tapping where I think there are like seven or eight. Homie's got to yeah. pay the mortgage. I mean, it's hot in Arizona, but come on. Oh uh, no, this was this was New York, so it was it was twenty degrees at the high the whole time there. Yeah, get this. Every year Brandon goes to New York, but then he never stops by to say hi to us on the way home. I I wave on the plane, you know, as I'm. I'm passing over. I know, I know. I'm always standing there working on the garage or somewhere, and I'm like, oh, hey, Brandon. But, like, you know, be nice. I, I think I told you a little bit up front, but coming back this time from Tid the Season, not to derail too much, but coming back this time, I was sick on the plane, so my ears haven't unpopped, so I feel like I'm yelling the whole time, and it sounds like I'm underwater to myself. So this, they call <laughs> Underwater mimbos. Yeah, there you go. They call it the ship misplague. Everybody gets sick uh, when they go out there. Oh, I wouldn't I know. go out there, then. Yeah, John, you wouldn't know. I had to go to security and try to pull some strings, and I have zero power to pull any string. You know what the best part is? Is I had so many people I know, like Jay Hawk, who's been on the show, and he was like, dude, you could have texted me. And I was like, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't think that you were there. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think you listened to the same shitty bands that I do. (laughs) No, I, no, that's, that's definitely not the case. I mean, dudes perform with Snapcase, dudes, like, yeah obviously done shit with keith like for a hip-hop dude that dude is entrenched in hardcore especially new york hardcore shout out to shay <laughs> so we're on 2014 from parts unknown fuck yeah we Ooh. are i guess that we're wait a minute did we did we just skip right over x lives no we just were, were you asleep no we did i mean we, we talked about it but You're like wearing a shirt that says unteachable and goddamn are you this is your show and we're having to keep refining telling you what's going on it says on. unteachers what? number one and, well, I can't um, see it over your microphone. Yeah, well. What do you think about X-Live, Dan? I don't know, man. Just, uh, it's fine. I don't know. It's a record. <laughs> it's Whatever. fine. It's a record that exists. I like Drag King a lot. Mm. Okay, fine. Well, we just talked like- about the producer and stuff. I mean, you know, how did this record affect your sex life? You know, like, I need to know these things. What actually happened was John Beatty said everything everyone needs to say ever about X-Live's. It was great. All right. It's fine. I was there. I was totally there. <laughs> you were all there with me. Yes. yes. <laughs> the great secret. Wow. God damn. It's just going to go forward with an onslaught. Everything I said about Groove on the last record. Yeah. That's not here. We're back to well, being I mean, chaotic and random. There's some Groove in there. Well, I mean, dude, you got speaking of chaotic and or more still the random. Sean, a- Sean Ingram, Nicole-esque on yeah, Pelican dude. of the Desert. Oh, yes. Amazing. Uh, Old Light with Brian Fallon from Gaslight Anthem. There's your kind of random. I mean, this record for me, um, it starts this kind of cathartic thing that Eats It is kind of going to start doing over the next two records. Um, you know, Decaying with the Boys is kind of the Trojan horse where you're like, oh, fuck, here we are. We're, we're about having a good time, fun lyrics, good riffs. But then you get to songs like More, which, God damn it like it is emotionally heavy you can't help but feel the weight of what that song means to keith and his vocal delivery the way the band performs it even when they perform it live you know el dorado is kind of a, it's kind of weird when it kind of comes out because it sort of has this like sort of not southern almost like a country-esque kind of vibe to it you know this thing going on like this album I think is 
typical eats it in the fact that it kind of touches on everything that the band does from kind of more structured, slow down, kind of mid-tempo-y, kind of heavy riff things. But also is, and I have to say this is a huge turning point for the band because it's the first time they're really experimenting with their tuning. And a song like More is the first time you're seeing the band play in like a, a, their own kind of drop C tuning to give it a sound that you haven't heard yet at this point. And, you know, something that kind of really caught me on on The Great Secret was Legs' use of double bass, kick drum. You know, you hadn't really heard that on on any of the other stuff up until now, at least not as noticeably as this. I think Steve coming back into the band, nothing against Josh, nothing against any of the people that have played bass, but Steve really kind of finds a way to lock in with the rest of the guys between Jordan and Andy and the, and the drums, and it just creates a fuller sound that we hadn't really heard in, in a little while. And I think this speaks to the fact that, you know, like Brandon was saying, this band just tours like probably 250 days out of the year. And I don't think you can't become tight as a group and not do that. And Kurt Ballou fucking produced this record. Holy shit. Converge. That'd be a dream for them, right? I mean, looking up to them and, and, uh, I mean, all the influence they had in the earlier albums and then full circle, be able to come back around and actually do an album with them. Yeah. This dude that you've been listening to, you're listening to his band since you were a kid. Yeah. Every (laughs) setup, every teardown has to be, Hey dude, what do you think of this? Cause they're putting these records out. They're tight. Everything locks in together. It's chaotic. It's hardcore. We love it. I think the thing that was interesting about this record for me was, you know, if you watch, the again, the web series, uh, the making of this record, Keith was sick. Keith didn't have lyrics. Like, he, like, right up until making this record, he was still finishing this record. And there was a lot of pressure. And I feel like for once, you know, I kind of talked about it a little bit on the last record. This feels like a record that kind of really escaped out of keith uh needed to come out of him um songs like more you know if you don't know what that's about just go google it um but obviously we're getting really we're starting to get really personal lyrics out of keith and i wonder how much of that is the fact that his back was against the wall because of his sickness because of needing to put out a product but it's i feel like this is a huge turning point lyrically for the band where it's it's more introspective instead of kind of just like I, we, we keep saying, or I do at least, uh, creative writing process. It's more of an and, actual outlet, like artistically, yeah. and it hadn't really been that before. Like Brandon said before, it was like, what's some really cool shit that I can say that people are going to remember? Yeah. But like, I, I defy you to listen to more and not feel everything that Keith is feeling from that experience that caused that song to, to come to life. No, this is actually... Um... So this is around time where we played with Every Time I Die twice. This is around the time that we played with him the first time. And I think Keith had stopped drinking for a while, too. He did on this record, yeah. And uh, I think the show we played, he definitely went back (laughs) (laughs) at that point. And this made me, I mean, this made me get, I think probably told this story in a past one, but this gave, gave me so much more respect for this band because this band had been at that point touring for 15 years plus um literally gave us the dream scenario of where like they just hung out with us before the show we went to a bar before the show you know at the show they bought some merch they like you know shouted us out on stage they invited us back to the hotel bar after we're watching like wrestling videos it was just like they're so down to earth for a band that's touring as much as they do for as long as they have and be able to still like just be the chillest guys like I've ever met. It's ridiculous. To be able to shoot the shit with the local bands, yeah. Yeah, it's like 
it's what every time dan you know this i mean coming from the band and, and you i mean you guys it's one of those things where every time you play with a big band you always wish that you um you would have that experience but typically more often than not so you just walk up to the band and you say hey you had a good set and maybe they caught your set and more than likely they probably didn't they're probably sitting backstage but like andy was out in the crowd the whole time like they're just they're so down to earth and this like i said with this album that's like around the time that we, we did that show and it's just it gave me such a new appreciation for them because that's how you perceive them in the videos and that's how you kind of perceive them from a distance but they really are they 100 like that there's no face for the camera yeah exactly yeah and that's yeah that's what i love about that band the they could have just that backstage for the entire time but no they're out there in the crowd the entire time as they are joe jordan's at the merch booth pretty much 90 percent of the time andy's out in the crowd watching the bands you know it's 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 just cool to see that speaking to that i remember when local at the time a local band called wilson uh opened for yep. every time i die uh back around the big dirty era Hold and on. what was that was it full-blown fuckery or whatever full blast fuckery it was before that even but it was right around that time when they were getting ready to write that record but I remember I didn't get to go, um, but my friends were like, yeah, so like they go to see every time I die with me all the time. And they were like, so Keith came out and he's like, typically, you know, like we know we're the best band on the bill. Uh, but after that band, holy shit, uh, we got to really step up our game. And I think, you know, I have so many memories like that where like friends bands, you know, the, those guys will be like, we saw that band. Give it up for your local band because those that band is fucking rad. And that's how they become a band like us who gets to take out friends bands and so forth or tour with other bands. Um, so, you know, that's something, you know, I think is really cool about that band is that they're not above checking out local bands and actually supporting bands in general and, and you know like brandon was saying you know taking out knock loose taking out harm's way taking out acacia strain taking out all these great bands whether they're legacy bands new and upcoming bands and especially with tid the season i think you know they they haven't lost sight of being able to shine the spotlight on those that have influenced them and those that are coming up that they are excited about yeah are we moving on to uh the latest record tomorrow the weather's going to be in the low teens oh no. shit i would go back to for that last one is they put out the b-sides a year later with a salem ep which had a oh yeah it had saturnalia on there which is like what in my opinion if that was on the actual album it's one of the best songs on there um and then they also did a nirvana cover which was kind of unique for them because i don't think they had done a cover like a record they had cover. they had uh, i used to love her by guns and roses which was on the punk goes acoustic uh, album uh, Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was just interesting to see like that rendition, and like now with Keith doing like Soul Patch and stuff. I mean, he's doing yeah. all nineties. So. I I love the background story on that, where like Legs was the one pushing it, <laughs> and then he was so wasted because like Cold Cock Whiskey had been giving them a bunch of shit, like literally had been giving them a bunch of their product, and they were like, "Yo, you got to record this song if you want to do it." He's like, "Oh, oh, fuck!" So like, <laughs> what you hear is like a really hammered or and or hungover Legs like recording that cover of Tourette's. <laughs> That's funny. Shout out to that uh, seven inch for uh, allowing me to buy my new vehicle. <laughs> there you go. That's so how we. Been, that's how we pay yeah, our bills. Low teens. Well, low Fucking teens, low man. Teens. First of all, you know Will Putney. Who? Are we gonna talk about Will Putney again? I'm we gonna, are gonna talk about Will Putney. Oh, just take everything the band's capable of and make it sound better. Yeah, that's right. I said better. I don't think I've drawn a line in the sand here. There isn't a whole lot of division in the ETID community, you know, as far as as far as what sounds good, what doesn't sound good. Uh, this is this is actually my favorite every time I die record, which yeah. is very unusual for me. 
uh, to for their latest record to be the best one. Uh, but in this case, man, I drank the flavor aid, and that's what I believe that the newest album is the best. I think we're in the same camp because before that it was Hot Damn, and this is like a 180 from Hot Damn, and this is Lotus is probably my favorite album. It's been enough albums to where I'm okay with hearing some different shit. Yeah, and it's probably the most like it resonates the most like emotionally because of what Keith was going through and yeah. lyrically most cohesive as well. So personally, you know, like to talk about personal lyrics, this is their most down to earth. Like this is the first time you're like, wow, Keith is an actual person. This is the best he's ever sounded. Like his singing voice, his screams. Yeah. This is literally the best he sounded and, and his delivery, his lyrics. Like he hasn't lost anything. Like he's not like phoning it in here. This is like huh. everything has. No, and it's and it's also like, uh, dude, I'm sorry you had to go through all that. Yeah, but I'm kinda, for, but I'm kind of glad you did because I love the record you put out because of it. <laughs> yeah. Now forever, like every every time I die show, I feel like they've done since they're gonna end with map change and just write it out. You know, you could, you could honestly keep it going forever. This record is is really hard for me to listen to. Like, you know, when, when the random songs from this record come up, I'm always like, man, this is really great. I love this record. But when I listen to it from start to finish, it's it's very hard uh, to listen to emotionally because it's so cathartic. And it's uh, it's one of those that just it it, it grabs you. you. You can't not listen to the whole thing and you can't not help be taken through the whole narrative that Keith is, is painting through the, the tragedies of what he's going through um, you know fear and trembling I mean we talked about the band being influenced by dead guy well you fucking got him from dead guy on this song oh yeah and it's you know thinking about how like sometimes this is the song that will kickstart the record the, the live set and you just know that like when this happens like it's it's a huge emotional release and you know for anyone who's ever like lost someone or almost lost someone or gone through through loss as a whole this record is very it's like cathartic to listen to um i think map change is a song you know i I made the comment about uh in the event or uh in the event that everything should go wrong off of of a hot damn and i think you honestly like they showed flashes of that throughout their career but i think if it isn't for a song like that and, and people kind of being like, oh, what's this like kind of melodic side of the band? I honestly don't know if you get a song like you get on, on some of these on this record, like, you know, a, a map change or whatever, because that was kind of the, the beginning, the, the nucleus of this whole thing. Uh, and then it just kind of blossomed over the last few records. I think this is also and, you know, I think Brandon would be a good person or even Dan to kind of speak to this. This is the second record where the band really started experimenting with their tunings. You know, you, you got a lot of different songs going from, you know, D to, to drop C to, to a little bit lower and so forth. And, and I think for once, instead of a band just kind of relying on tunings to be a crutch, to be like, oh, here's the same thing we do just in a lower tuning. I think it really allowed the band to create more range and diversity in their sound and really gave it a vehicle for Keith to expand on what he had been doing at the time. Um, I don't know if anyone else felt that way about this record. I mean, I'm not the guy to ask about the tuning because <laughs> I'm just, but a, I mean, as far hi, as like what you I'm can, the guy to ask about the tuning. <laughs> I think that that does change things when you're able to kind of, instead of always being like in the same key, here's kind of the box we're in. 
I think this really showcases that every time I die can start experimenting and they're experimenting so late in their career where most bands are like, yeah, you know, we had two or three great records in the beginning of our career. Fuck it. We're going to write on that and just keep putting out records and maybe we'll play a song or two. But this is a band that, you know, having seen this band like Brandon said, almost every single time they come through Michigan, Varian Trembling's in the set. C++ gets is in the set. Awful Lot's in the set. It Remembers is in the set. Didn't want to join your stupid cult. Like, a lot of this record... Which is the best song the on the set. album, by the way. Which one? I did want to join your stupid cult. Yes. Agree to disagree, but I will also say it was kind of weird on the last <laughs> record where more they played around with it. Like, I remember seeing a tour at the beginning of the album cycle and more was the first song they played more was in the middle of the set and then more was kind of the album closer or the set closer and i remember thinking like ah that's probably going to be the set closer from here on forward like that that just makes sense well then here we are a record later and map change it's like nope that is definitely the the set closer the closer for all time you could close the end of the world with map change yeah but I just, and that's the thing, you know, when, when talking to Biggie, who is the band's, you know, uh, manager and so forth, we kind of talked at the end of our interview where I was like, he goes, you know, every record you get, you go to yourself, this is the best e record you're ever going to get. They're never going to get any better. And they just keep getting better every record. And you've been saying that to yourself for 15, almost 20 fucking years. So, you know, at this point, I'm just kind of like, I don't know what's coming. Like they got two songs that they are going to be on the next record, supposedly, and they sound great. And I'm looking forward to seeing how they're going to top themselves on this next record. Because low teens, like we all have said, sounds like unanimously is all of our favorite record. And 20 some odd years into a band's career, that's usually not the case. They're usually resting on their laurels and just kind of going like, hey, remember when we were great like 15 years ago? And every time I die, it's like, remember when we were like kind of okay 15 years ago? Well, now we're fucking dope. And like now we're rewarding you for sticking with us. Like Brandon said, this is one of the few bands that I never fell off from because they always reward me for the loyalty and just pay off dividends galore with how fucking rad they are. They're great fucking people. They're a great fucking band. And they just get better as they keep going on. Production-wise, songwriting, everything. There is nothing this band can't do, and I don't see why this band can't go for another 10, 15 years. Yeah, and if there were any other band from that time frame, they would be ending every set with a new black. But like you said, a single album, they're able to find a new song that just becomes that, like, all right, they've got to play this song live like every time I see them. So, I, and to the tuning piece, I think Jordan's already been teasing. He's playing with a lot of new tunings on the new album. They played a new song at Fitness, which was just full blown, like in your face the whole time. Like it's, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see where they go with this. You know, you kind of were talking about how you know a lot of bands would rest on the laurels of the new black. I remember there was a solid handful of tours I saw where they didn't play the new black, and I don't think a lot of bands in Every Time I Die's position where that is arguably to the most crossover of fans their biggest song where they would just leave it off the table and be like yo no we got other songs we think are better than that we're gonna leave it off the table and i think that showcases again why the band just keeps you on your toes they don't stick to a set list they don't do anything conventional but it just works every single time why does it work for every time i die but it doesn't work for other bands in the same genre it's not contrived that's why They've convinced everyone that they are sincere and they're the only ones. Sorry, I have a patent on that word. (laughs) Contrived. (laughs) Only I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. I have a mic patent on that. Exactly. You're right, though. It's not contrived. It is sincere as sincere can be. 
And sometimes sincere means I don't give a fuck. And sometimes sincere means, dude, I just went through some shit this year. You know? So, I mean, take it or leave it. Which is, I mean, basically my final thought with every time I die is it's all sincerity. It's all very real. And if you haven't given it a chance, give it a chance. If it's not your thing, then fuck you because uh, it's actually really awesome. You should change your opinion. Brandon Kellum, what about you? I mean, I'm obviously a fan. Um, Hell, I fly across the country every year to go see it, Uh, which, John, one day we'll meet up at that show. Uh, Just not the last two. Um, I mean, I, I to that point, I would recommend anybody like go out to the Tid the Season event they do because it's it's less now about the music and it's more about the community around the music, which is the most beautiful thing in the world because it honestly feels like Buffalo is not a big place. It's no, downtown, and it's six thousand people. The majority are from out of state, some out of country. They're there for a week or two, so they're people that are spending their money. To not only go to this like show, but to get hotels, to be put up in this like city for a week, and everybody there, like it feels like a summer camp. Like everybody there is just everybody's best friend. Everywhere you go, it's just like the coolest vibe ever. And I think that community is what's going to allow this band, like you said, John, to keep going for if they want to do another 10, another 15 years. I can see them doing that. Then I can see them like turning into something more legacy, where they just do hit the season once a year and like a few other shows, and not grind. Boat shows, yeah. I, I can see that being that that being them inevitably, like for the foreseeable future. You know, John Beatty. Final thoughts on Every Time I Die. I think Every Time I Die are one of those bands that started <laughs> off probably in the middle of the pack for a lot of people. They were very unassuming as far as how they started and what a lot of people probably thought they were going to do. But I think it's the honesty, the sincerity the DIY ethic and like Brandon and I have kind of pointed out a few times, like the not taking themselves too seriously themselves, but putting everything into the music and creating the best product they have, taking everything from all the influences that the individual members have, the the town that they live in, all that kind of stuff and putting it into a melting pot to create the best snapshot of who they are for every record. And I think it's just undeniably it's just undeniably the band. I, like in this day and age where, you know, you we, we're now 150 episodes in discography discussion. And sometimes, you know, like with the Static X episode you guys did a little bit ago where you're like, started out great. And then it just kind of became a band phoning it in. And there's a lot of showcases of that with the band so far into the career. And, you know, like Dan, like Brandon, like myself, and, and I'm going to go ahead and just say Joe just to make it a unanimous decision. Thank you. We're saying Low Teens is the best that this band is capable of and put out. We're 25 years in this band's career, and they're not resting on their laurels. They're pushing the genre. They're pushing their sound to lengths that we never saw coming. And I think that's exciting. I mean, we're all in our mid-30s, roughly. We all grew up in the hardcore scene, the metalcore scene, and we can think of so many bands, and Dan and Joe and everybody has talked about a lot of the bands that were influential and then fell by the wayside because they just couldn't keep going. Yet, here we are, episode 150, and I think it's it's a testament to every time I die, the fact that they're able to still be here, still be relevant and still not only be a legacy, but the torchbearers for what came before be the torchbearers of what's coming up forward because they're not afraid to bring those people forward with them. The knock looses, the, the, you know, the veins, the, all those kind 
because they know where they are and they're comfortable in who they are that they can stand above them because they know who they fucking are and i think at the end of the day a lot of people as people should take that further and just go yo i am who i am unapologetically and i'm i'm the shit and that's every time i die they're the fucking best i think every time i die is the band that gets made fun of the most for playing good hardcore i think every joke every skit every mockery that's ever been done about hardcore music or the one that comes to mind for me the most is the metal by numbers video you can't make fun of the band for doing what they do very well and if you're a fan of any band that is influenced by this band i know i'm a fan of american standards i appreciate obviously every time i die are one of the biggest influences of our band you know them converge i mean a lot of bands that influence them those are bands that we grew up listening to and and to what we've said this whole time i think the most admirable thing about them is their ability just to be themselves and not to follow like the trend of the people that as we see this tattoo <laughs> the trend of all the other bands that played similar music but had to conform to a certain style or a certain like persona i think we just saw john's ass that was my fucking thigh you bitch my d- not that big <laughs> I guess I just saw what I wanted to see. <laughs> I mean, that's what you do with every time I die. You just you hear put what it you out there. You put it out there in the world. Brandon, episode 150. It goes without saying that you're one of the reasons this podcast was successful in the early days and continues to be successful. What's your album of the week? Oh, shit, man. I should have uh, guessed it. I've listened to you guys enough to know that you're going to hit me with the album of the week. And uh, you're like, have- fuck those guys. I'm just going to make one up on the spot. <laughs> I mean, I've been listening to a lot of Great Haven uh, this week, but I listen to a lot of Great Haven all the time. I mean, super underrated band, especially for fans of Norma G. John, what about you? Uh, you know, Brandon will probably appreciate this, but I've been in a big Wu-Tang mood, so uh, it's actually uh, Ghostface's uh, Liquid Swords. Dan, what about you? 238, You Should Be Living. For me, it's Wage War. Pressure. Because it has low on it. Nice. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks so much for doing episode 150 with us. It was a lot of fun. I know there's probably 10,000 more hours of content that you guys probably had prepared, but uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time out and talking to us. I mean, now the pressure's off. Now we've done Norma Jean and Every Time I Die. So now I can finally get back to doing things the way I want to do them. Take us (laughs) out, DFT. If you've ever been listening to this podcast and wondered why will they not talk about the bands that I wanted to talk about, well, we did that already, but in case we didn't, you can reach out to us in several different ways. You can reach out to us on Facebook under facebook.com slash discography discussion. You can reach out to us on Twitter at Discuss Metal or at Discuss Metal Dan or Discuss Metal Joe. You can send us an email at show at gmail.com or you can join us on our Discord server. There will be a link in the show notes that will take you right to our Discord server. We even have a discography discussion official group on Facebook that you can join. Just ask to join the group and I will approve you personally. Or, you know, Jeff will do it. Who knows? Hey, y'all. If you can't get a hold of us through one of those avenues, then uh, it's your fault. And on that note, this has been episode 150 of Discography Discussion. Thank you for listening. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Subscribe to our podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Visit DiscussMetal.com for all things discography discussion. And please send questions and comments to Show at gmail.com. 
If you are not a patron, you can become one at patreon.com forward slash discuss metal. We have some sweet perks. Give me your gifts, you money! I lost the list. Because <laughs> I love all of them so much. Okay, we're going to start over. No, you're not. Keep going. Fuck you. All right. Are you trying to do a thing? Yeah. Continue. Okay. <laughs> really on top of it tonight, as you can tell. Brutally speaking is a innervate. Oh, fuck. I fucked it up. See? But, uh, yeah. So if you can't, uh, if you can't get a hold of us during... Uh, so if you can't get... <laughs> this is going so well, too. 